This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Coming to you from WHU on the banks of the Rhine River in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Well, hello, folks. Garrett here once again. And, uh, and once again, I am joined by my esteemed colleague and friend, Professor Dries Fahms, for this latest episode, actually first episode of the fifth season of the Most Awesome Founder Podcast. This season is going to be uh, an interesting mix of experiences. We are bringing on some of the uh, most successful and well-known founders in the Vejo ecosystem, but we're also testing out a, a different format as well for a few of our episodes. Story behind this is this, is you know both Dries and I, we often receive requests from students and, and other folks in our network to, to share suggestions about interesting research or, or books, podcasts, or uh, just various pieces of content on entrepreneurship that is current and relevant. So we thought it'd be fun to perhaps share some of those hidden gems with with you all that we've been kind of com compiling or learning about over the, the previous few months. Um, but Dries, maybe you can kind of kick things off and explain to the audience how this is going to unfold and what we're going to be talking about. Yes, Garrett, happy to do so. So let me briefly explain what, what we agreed to uh, plan for this episode. So we agreed that we would both identify three items to discuss in the podcast episodes. And we agreed that each of us would select one item that made us learn something, one item that made us think, and one item that actually made us laugh. And so what we simply will do will, is to discuss these items, and hopefully it is not only fun for us, but also for the audience, and they can learn something. So I think that's the plan. I think it's a good plan. And you know I, what excited me about this, this format is... Um, are kind of unique perspectives on the same topics, right? You know, you, you being, uh, you know, one of the, the foremost researchers on this subject and me being uh, uh, a guy that's been in the trenches for a few decades. So, um, you know, I think a lot of people think that, uh, you know, research in academia looks different than pra practitioners, but I, I have a feeling, and maybe you see otherwise, but I have a feeling we're going to be closer aligned on a lot of things than, uh, than perhaps we thought. So maybe this is not Let's going see. to be, yeah, maybe it's going to be a point counterpoint kind of thing, or, or maybe we're, we're going to see the stars align, but should, yes. be, should be fun nevertheless. So, um, well, if you're ready, Let's uh, let's kick things off. And since this is your brainchild, I'm going to ask you to go first and introduce your first topic on something that made you learn. 
So um, the first topic I have, and yeah, I'm a professor. So the first item that I took was an academic paper from some esteemed colleagues called Helen Cohen and Bingham. And these colleagues published a paper in 2020 in Organization Science, which is actually a top-level journal in our field. And the title of the paper is Do Accelerators Work? If so, how? That's the title of the paper. Now, before I, I go into the content, maybe, Gareth, let, let me ask you a question because you're, you're very experienced with accelerators. Yes, you? they do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, you have been active in Techstars. You actually started the accelerator at WAU, so you have a lot of experience. So, so maybe can you briefly explain from your practitioner perspective what, what you see as the critical characteristics of an accelerator and why startups should actually engage in them? What is your perspective? Yeah, I mean, great question. I mean, I think the first thing to note is that um, not all accelerators are equal. Um, they come in many, many shapes and sizes. And, and frankly, some things are called accelerators that aren't, and, yeah. and some things that aren't are, you know? So, um, and I think a lot of people struggle with a, a definition of what it is in the first place. Um, I come from a particular school of types of accelerators, you know, being from Boulder, Colorado, where, where Techstars came from, being that being one of the first accelerators in the world, um, certainly one of the largest and, and most notable. But I would say Y Combinator also being of a, a, a similar structure and many others is they are a mentor-driven fixed-term accelerator. So generally what defines an accelerator from an incubator is its duration. So an accelerator being fixed-term, Techstars is, I think, 14 weeks. You know, Y Combinator can be six months. It, it varies a little bit. But the, the key principle that I think the most successful accelerators have in common is that they're mentor-driven. That means the way they're accelerating new ventures is not by teaching them entrepreneurship or you know giving them a ton of, of workshops or homework but uh, matching them with successful entrepreneurs that have come before them so they can learn their successes and their failures and hopefully duplicate the right ones and and yeah. skip the wrong ones so Generally, the best accelerators are the ones that have the best collection of mentors that are committed to add value to the to the next generation of entrepreneurs. Yeah. And actually, so the, the hypothesis in, in the paper of these colleagues is that the, the main effect that accelerators can trigger is a learning effect. So by being engaged in the accelerator, getting all this mentoring, as a startup, you can learn things that you otherwise would not learn mainly from other people outside your own venture. And that learning effect might help you to accelerate your startup, meaning that you can get funding more quickly, that you can grow in terms of employees more quickly. So that's their hypothesis. So that was the, the starting hypothesis of this paper. I, I'll just say, like the, I would dig a layer deeper, too, okay. in terms of what kind of learning. Um, and, and for me, the, the great benefit of a, a new venture being an accelerator is experiential learning. Yeah. You know, it's, it's very different to learn about successes or best practices when you're looking at a case study mm. as opposed to actually, 
you know, implementing it or exploring it through the lens of, of your own venture. And I think that's, uh, it's another characteristic where you can see more sophisticated versus less sophisticated accelerators. Oftentimes accelerators will be so full of programmatic activities that the founders that are participating are involved in it every day for hours a day, one workshop after the next. And then they're not afforded to the time to consolidate, process the learnings and actually start hypothesis testing on their own ventures. Oh, and so what in the papers, and, and this is for me as an academic, a, a huge challenge and for all academics. So and we see this phenomenon of accelerators. And of course you want to, you want to find out does the fact that startups get into an accelerator, does that make them better? Now, finding that out, it's not that straightforward because you want to actually demonstrate what we call in the academic world, causality. So is there a causal effect of being in an accelerator on your success? But that's difficult because you might also think like maybe the smartest people, they are more likely to want to go in an accelerator or maybe accelerators are simply very good in picking promising startups and maybe what they do during the startup is complete bullshit, but simply the fact that they picked the right ones helped them uh, to make them successful. So then the question becomes, how can you actually measure this kind of learning effect and isolate it from other effects like the selection effect? Yeah? And that's a, a big thing that a lot of academics are uh, <laughs> losing sleep on in, in the evening, like how can I demonstrate causality? And I think the very nice thing of this paper is that they found a very nice way to do that. Mm. Namely, what they did was they got access to two accelerators and they don't mention the names in the paper, but I think Techstars might be a likely candidate in this research. Um, and what they did was said, okay, we have the, the startups that participate in the accelerator, but by collaborating with Techstars, we also know the companies that just didn't make it. So these were companies that applied for the accelerator that in the application process were very close to being selected, but in the end, they didn't make it. And so what they do in the paper is simply compare the ones that were in the accelerator with the ones that just didn't make it. Because if you compare these two, you actually don't have this selection problem because you have the startups that wanted to do in the coin the accelerator, and they were almost selected by the accelerator, meaning yeah, just in the final selection, they were left out. So you actually have almost like twins that you can compare. And so if you find a significant difference between these two groups in terms of their success, in terms of employees funding after the accelerator, then you can attribute that effect really to a learning effect and not to a selection effect. And just curiously, how is success defined? So what they do in the paper, and of course, it's also a bit like what kind of information uh, can you get? So they look at the amount of funding that they're able to collect after the accelerator, the growth in terms of uh, employee growth after the accelerator, and also they look at web traffic. So how much web traffic are you able to generate? So these are three kind of indicators that they use uh, to measure performance. Of course, you can start having a discussion like, is funding an indicator of success? <laughs> That's, I think, already a big discussion point in general, but at least they have a number of indicators to, to uh, compare. And so nicely, yeah, yeah. The, the, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, just a couple points. Like, um, 
looking at outcomes is so challenging, right? Because accelerators are really taking place in the earliest, earliest stages of the venture pre-product market fit. And there are so many you know, external variables that come into play, right? Uh, competition and market dynamics and macroeconomic trends and um, so many things that can you know, positively or negatively affect outcomes, finding that causation and direct correlation, I, I think is, can be, I imagine could be really quite challenging. It, the one other piece I wanted to touch on was this idea of selection. Um, so there are a few accelerators in the world that are highly, highly competitive, right? And, and Techstars and Y Combinator being two of them. Um, they're literally harder to get into than MIT or, or Harvard. Um, however, they are already working from a limited pool of applicants. And I think this needs to be taken into account. And I think it's one of the challenges that the accelerator model is facing in 2022 and in recent years, particularly with the crazy availability of venture capital. And, and that variable is very simply that accelerators tend to skew almost exclusively towards first-time founders. And I think the majority of research, and you might know this better, you will know this better than me, but the majority of research says that the, high, the probability of su success increases with experience. So first-time founders, as sexy as they may be portrayed in the media, um, have a much higher probability of, of failure. Those, those are the people that go into accelerators because once you've been through that journey once or twice, um, you're not gonna, you already have a network. You already know how to access venture capital. You know how to kind of run your lean startup processes and, and build a product and build a team. So it doesn't add as much value. Now there are cases where there are industry specific ones and, and that can provide some value as well. But generally speaking, the pool, it, it's safe to say is mostly first time founders. It, it's, it's a very smart comment, and the authors actually address that comment in their paper. So they, uh, they look uh, for potential interaction effects of serial founders. So what they try to see is like, do serial if you have a serial founder in your team, is then the effect of an accelerator different? And surprisingly, the answer is no, it did not have an effect. So the, the learning effect that they found, yeah, so they found this learning effect. So they, they seem to provide evidence that if you're in an accelerator, you learn stuff and that will help you to become more successful. And that learning effect was even present for serial founders, which they actually did not expect. Mm -hmm. So they were following your reasoning and surprisingly, they found that even for serial founders, the effect was there. So that was quite surprising. Well, I wonder if it has anything to do with those serial founders being pooled with this collection of first-time founders. So, you know, essentially they're doing their demo day or they're presenting their ventures and all things are equated as equal and they're looking at these business models. I, I don't know. It's an interesting, it's really interesting to, yeah. to hear. What would you, I, maybe to wrap this one up, yeah. what would you say... Um, your overall sense was that that accelerator from this research that accelerators uh, have a strong place and provide good value and are actually achieving their goal of accelerating ventures or no? Yeah, so I think th this paper seems to justify the added value of an accelerator. So uh, 
if VAU students come to me and asking, should I apply for the Y Combinator based on the study? I would say, yes, yes, you should, because you will learn something that you otherwise will not learn. So in that way, I think it gives some convincing thing. And for me as an academic, what I really learned <clears throat> was this thing about how can you create a, a sample that allows you to measure causality? And I think this is a very interesting approach for, for instance, also VC companies. I'm always a bit surprised a lot of VC companies actually do not do a lot of data analytics. Like, do we actually pick the right startups? And this kind of approaches can actually, I think, really help them to find that out. And the statistics are not very complicated. It's rather you have to create the right sample, and then you can do these very interesting statistics that can actually prove to yourself whether you're really good in picking the winners and helping uh, the startups that you have selected. Maybe they don't want to know the answer. That's a different story. But I, I actually think it would be quite interesting to do that. Right, right. I mean, in the end, an accelerator is a VC, right? So um, the mechanisms are, are still the same. So really, really interesting. Thanks for, for sharing that article. I, as, the, as our objective, it made me learn something. I appreciate it. Okay, my turn. In Europe now. <laughs> So um, being the non-academic, I'm going to pull from a source that is terribly non-academic, <laughs> although I will say that the, uh, uh, as it's a podcast, um, the podcast host is very much an incredible academic, one of the, okay. the foremost researchers um, in neuroscience. He is uh, a professor of neuroscience at Stanford University. His name is uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman, and he has a wonderful podcast called The Huberman Lab. Um, if you all haven't heard it, um, I highly recommend it. If you like science and learning about the, the human body and brain and optimization, uh, he is extraordinary. So I'm an avid listener of the Huber Huberman Lab podcast that fills almost all of my gym sessions. Um, <laughs> And he recently did a, an episode, um, I think it just the last few days of January of 2022, on optimizing, optimizing your workspace, but specifically for productivity, focus, and creativity. And I thought this was an interesting topic as we have been rocket, rocket shipped into this, new, this era of new work, uh, remote remote work, hybrid work environments. And some people have really thrived in that environment and others have not. Yeah. So coming from a, a neuroscientist's perspective, um, Dr. Huberman uh, presented a, a topic that has existed in architecture and physical planning and design world for a long time, but kind of brought it into the neuroscience space, which is the idea of what's called the cathedral effect. So simply put, the cathedral effect, uh, what it refers to is how the ceiling height of a room can actually affect cognitive processing of individuals. Why and what the heck does that mean? So <laughs> through many, many research studies, many, many sample sizes, um, by multiple authors around the world, they, what they discovered is, in short, the outcomes were the higher the ceiling in a room somebody is working in, the more creative thinking takes place. The lower the ceiling in the room, the more analytical thinking takes place. Okay. Now, one might say, what the heck does a ceiling have to do with the, the way we think? 
an academic, I would ask, what is the mechanism? What is what is the net? What is the mechanism? Exactly. So what's interesting is that human neurobiology essentially adapts, and not just neurobiology, but our entire physiology adapts to scale. So when we're in wide open spaces, let's say we're outside, you know, it, it, beautiful vistas, you know, looking at, at prairies or, or mountains and whatnot, in those wide open spaces, our vision and our hearing and even our physical movements expand out. And we do that in order to take in more stimuli. And that is literally hardwired in us for thousands of years of um, needing to be aware of, of dangers or finding food or different, different opportunities as such. Conversely, when we're in more enclosed spaces, our hearing, our, our vision, our movement becomes more constrained to suit that enclosed context. So if you've ever thought of it, like, you know, if you go into a small room or a small space, generally your shoulders will curl forward, your hands will come in, your, your head will come down, right? And when we're outdoors, we tend to sit, stand more erect, shoulders broad. And that's because we are literally extending our our senses to meet the demands of of that particular space we're in so from a bringing it back to the workspace and something that i've been thinking about right now as i'm building a team and an office hunting is you know what role what role does this play particularly in this new era of like hybrid and and remote work and learning as well i think it applies in the the educational set, setting so as we as individuals are afforded kind of more autonomy to create the spaces that we want to suit our cognitive needs you know do we need to differentiate the types of work or learning that we need to do and thus you know alter our environments accordingly does it mean if you are uh, crunching numbers, you should do it in a, in a tight corner in a small room. And if you're, you know, painting masterpieces, you should do it by a window in, in open space. And, you know, maybe we need to start looking at the specific types of cognition rather than what we've historically done is how do we optimize for productivity, which may be too generic. As it's actually read to the system one, system two thinking of, of Kahneman, that kind of stuff. Not? And then system one would be you know, the big, the cathedral effect would be system one and the narrow room would be more a system two approach. Uh, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's actually interesting because at VAU we have exams uh, this week. So I'm now thinking like, yeah, we, we just put students quite randomly in different rooms, but if we believe this cathedral effect, actually the room in which they are sitting for the exam can heavily impact their, their results. So they, if they are in a big room, they might be more creative during the exam. If they are put in a small room, they might be more analytical. So that's uh, quite an interesting uh, fact, I would say. You know, I, I, I'm just an N of one, but um, when I need to do cr really creative problem solving, um, I tend to go outside and walk. You know, and and I always thought that the primary reason is it was reducing like distractions and stimuli in my core area, and it was giving me kind of broader broader stimulus. Never really thought of oh well, the sky is limitless, and that's giving me giving me space above my head. 
Yeah, so it's being outside is the ultimate cathedral effect because you don't have a ceiling anymore. Yeah. That's right. But I mean, even if you look at like some of the tenants of like Feng Shui, which have been around for has been around for thousands of years, some of those principles uh, I think apply, right? Like um, you want to try to round corners. You always want to be facing a window, not having your back to it. And, you know, maybe some of those things have to do with danger and risk and the distraction that comes along with that. But this idea of openness attunes our senses to the world and maybe allows us to, to pick up on subtleties that we wouldn't otherwise. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, okay. there's my there's my learnings. Yes. Dries, tell me something that made you think recently. Yeah. So, um, what made me think is related to a HBO documentary, and the title is "The Inventor Out for Blood in Silicon Valley." And so, it's a documentary about Terranos. Uh, I suppose, Garrett, you know what Terranos is about. Maybe you want to briefly explain what it is. <laughs> Well, I mean, if uh, if you read the news, anything you might have heard about the uh, Elizabeth Holmes saga, who raised hundreds of millions of dollars for her blood testing startup. Um, and as her R&D wasn't going as well as it was supposed to. Um, it's an understatement, I would say. <laughs> well, I think that's where it started, right? Is like she was falling behind. So she was kind of misinforming her investors. And she dug herself into a deeper and deeper and deeper hole till the point she was literally faking the results of her machinery, and um, which was terribly unethical. The problem was um, it got to a point where medical practitioners started making life or death decisions based on that data. So, Indeed. I think that that's the perfect summary. And documentary, of course gives a very nice description of this whole trajectory, how, how it emerged. But the nice thing is, I think in the documentary, they also try to explain a bit, how could this happen? Uh, how could somebody like Elizabeth Holmes so convincingly fake the existence of this technology? And to, to explain that, they actually present in the documentary a behavioral experiment, experiment by Dan Ariel, and I, I find this a very intriguing experiment. So the experiment starts with, uh, so I think it was at Stanford, if I remember well, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was in Stanford. So they invited students to participate in an experiment and they were put in a room and they said to the students, look, you go into a closed room, nobody can see you, you're not filmed and you get a dice. Yeah? So a dice, you throw the dice, can be between one and six. And if you have a four, we will give you $10. So you come out of the room, you tell, you tell us what you've thrown. And if it's a four, we will give you $10. So they did the experiment. And of course, what happened, there were surprisingly a lot of fours being thrown. And of course, that's the nice thing of throwing dice. You can even actually statistically calculate is the number of fours that have been generated. Can that happen? And so the fact was, no, this cannot happen. We clearly had some people that were lying. Then what they did was they put everybody on a lie detector. Mm. So they asked them, okay, you said you threw, you threw a four. Did you really throw a four? And they were actually able to catch the liars. So they actually found a number of liars that made it, again, more statistically plausible. So that was the first part of the experiment. Then the second part of the experiment, again, they invited students in a closed room, said, okay, if you throw a four, 
we will give you $10, but you will not get $10. We will give the $10 to a good cause. Mm -hmm. So you don't get the $10, the $10 go to a good cause. Mm -hmm. And so they did the same experiment. So people went into the room, they threw the dice and they could report. So first of all, Gary, do you think there were more liars or less liars? <laughs> That's what a, you think? wow. That is a, it, it's honestly a tough question. I mean, <laughs> part, part of me feels like I would be, um, there would, I would be justified in lying for a good cause. And so indeed, the number of liars increased. So more people said they had a four. But now the really interesting part of the experiment comes. So again, these people were put on a lie detector and the lie detector was not able to identify the liars. So in contrast to the first experiment, now the lie detector could not identify them. Mm -hmm. And so what the, the professor, how we interpret the data is that if we believe that we do something for a good reason, we can lie and nobody will notice it because we do not have this internal conflict between reality and what we believe. And so for him, this was an explanation about how Elizabeth Holmes could so convincingly fake the technology towards the investors. Namely, he believed that Elizabeth Holmes really thought that in the end, she would be able to produce the technology with one drop of blood, you could analyze a lot of diseases, and that she was just in a kind of between stage. And so because she was so convinced, the lying was not that difficult because there was no in internal tension. Right. So I think this was a very nice experiment to, to partly at least explain what was going on. But it also made me think about actually and we all teach, or at least that way we teach, and I think you're also a big fan of that, the lean startup approach. Yeah? And lean startup approach is mainly about developing a minimal viable product. So should not be perfect. You just want to show what it can do. And then you show it to your consumers, but also to your investors to convince them to fund your uh, startup. But of course, there is a kind of gray zone. Not? So when is an MVP a reasonable representation of your end product? And when is an MVP simple fake? When is it a lie? And so sometimes I'm thinking like, is there not a risk that by pushing this methodology forward, we actually getting into a dark side where we all become like Elizabeth Holmes pushing an MVP and maybe the, the technologically backbone that should be there is simply not there. Mm. Which I think is sometimes a tricky uh, issue also as a teacher, I would say. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the reasons why medical technologies have such stringent regulatory guidelines and hurdles to, to get over. But I, I would challenge a little bit this, you know, if you look at the lean method, you know, in its purest form, it, it's not so much about, yes, you build an MVP and you iterate and, you know, you evolve it as quickly as possible, but the underlying you know, magic behind that is rigorous and fast hypothesis testing, yeah. right? So that's really what the lean is all about is here's a hypothesis. We're going to test it. We're going to learn from it. We're going to adapt very quickly and we're going to repeat, you know, the bigger issue is how transparent are you in those, <laughs> in those results? Yeah. And, you know, I think there's an interesting piece to explore there of, um, what happens when the stakes get high, 
right? So if you're an early stage venture and maybe you've raised a little money, you know, you raised a quarter million or something and you're from some angels and you're in that early stage, um, you know, you are, you, you don't have a lot to lose to say, hey, this is what I'm learning. This is what I'm adapting. This is what, what test failed and what hypothesis was, was proven adequately for us to move forward. Um, because in the end, you know, a good entrepreneur knows that um, they're more than one venture and, yeah. and that their, you know, their credibility matters over the, the, their career trajectory of, of being an entrepreneur. But once you start raising hundreds of millions and you become the darling of the media and the and you have some of the biggest name investors in the world participating and watching you closely then the stakes become so high that it starts to feel like if you fail this you are branded a failure forever so i have a lot of issues with elizabeth holmes and and what she did um, but I would also say that there are some systemic, systemic underpinnings of what put her in the situation to do that. Not to mention the fact that it's not every day that a female yeah. ends up in that particular role. And I think there were some, I haven't seen that documentary, but I have seen some and read quite a bit of other stuff about it and some of the unique dynamics that took place because she was a, an attractive, intelligent female that was then buoyed by the media in such a big way. Like, so the question to me remains is like, is this some type of narcissistic personality or is it this overwhelming sense of pressure from the context in which she was placed. Yeah. Yeah. As she was really a poster girl of also of the Democrats in the US, for instance. I, I know I remember that Obama had her in one of his advisory committees because she was this poster girl of female entrepreneurship. And that, of course, can put some pressure on you. That's for sure. Absolutely. You know, so I, I think, um, you know, that there's that old adage of do you blame the player or blame the game i think when it comes to the theranos example i think it's a little bit of both but if you if you take that same analogy and you look at the lean startup approach um i think we have to we have to look at the intent of a process like that and um it's really it's really getting entrepreneurs to think like scientists yeah. Right. Because in the end, and I had this conversation with a, uh, someone I mentored just recently, I was like, you need to start thinking of yourself as instead of thinking of a, yourself as this salesman that's out hustling, think of yourself as, you know, a lab rat in a white coat and you're constantly being presented these uncertainties. And the, the more you test them, the faster you test them. And if you're not honest, you're not able to adapt to them and and test continue your testing more effectively so i, I i'm saying thumbs up to lean startup thumbs down to theranos <laughs> no and I, I agree with you i think an mvp is not an excuse to do sloppy research it is simply a tool that allows you to do good good research very quickly and i think these are two different things uh and, and we need to separate them so, that's right i mean the mvp is the laboratory yeah. You know, you're you're the technician, you know, getting the feedback from the experiment. So really, really cool. I mean, such a fascinating case 
that's out there, you know, and one of one of many, just one that happens to be so high profile and female and all all these things that really brought it to the to the forefront. All right. I'm switching gears again. It's back to you. It's my turn. And I think you'll start to see a pattern in, in my topics here. But what I am going to talk about, first of all, this time is an academic paper. Okay. However, I'm going to uh, stick with my guns and I'm going to talk a little bit about human physiology again, because it's really interesting to me. And um, particularly, as I said earlier, I'm in this process of, uh, you know, recruiting and building a team, um, creating this company and trying to build a culture and an ethos and, and values around it, which um, when I have these questions, I love looking at human psychology and hu human physiology because um, as a quick aside, <laughs> um, sometimes I feel like research on entrepreneurship and business in general is skewed heavily towards the unit of analysis being the firm. And I think we need to start taking more of an approach where the, the unit of analysis is the individual. And, you know, coming from development economics, one of my favorite books I've ever read um, was E.F. Schumacher's book, Small is Beautiful, Economics as if People Matter. And I am waiting for the day for an entrepreneurship scholar to write about entrepreneurship as if people mattered. Uh, I, th I think, of course, we do. There is great research on individuals within an organization. But just thinking of the firm itself as a collection of individuals, that small reframing, at least for us practitioners, might allow us to create more sustainable and humanistic ventures. Sorry for my tirade. That's, that's <laughs> your mission. <laughs> that's my mission. Kind of, kind of. So um, I read this paper, um, and it's by Hama Masoka and uh, Lizuka. And they wrote this paper called Reading on a Smartphone Affects Psi Generation, Brain Activity, and Comprehension. You might be asking yourself, Psi Generation? What the heck is that? Um, however, if you're not familiar with it, I can assure you it's something that you do every couple minutes of your life. And if you didn't do it, you would die. So... A physiological sigh is this unique breathing pattern that we all do, where we inhale twice, followed by a long exhale. So maybe you, if you envision, <gasps> now, when do you do that? If you've ever had a really hard cry, maybe it's been a while, maybe it was yesterday, but when you're like trying to compose yourself, you'll start doing more of those physiological sighs. Right before you fall asleep, you involuntarily start doing it more. Um, when you are asleep, particularly in REM sleep, it happens quite regularly. But mo all in all, it happens about every five minutes or so. And if you don't do it, it will, it, it can essentially start shutting down lung function and your ability to acquire enough oxygen and it will kill your brain <laughs> on a nice positive note. So this study looked at people that read on a smartphone, this unique visual, this growingly common visual 
environment of comprehension and, and learning. So what the study highlighted and essentially what it said is reading on a digital device as opposed to like reading on a piece of paper in the traditional analog sense reduces physiological size and essentially creates overactive prefrontal cortex activity. So the front of your brain, which is what makes us uniquely human, that uh, houses our rational thought, analytical thinking, sense of self and doubt and whatnot, becomes overactive. Mm -hmm. So as that becomes overactive and we reduce our physiological size, we're not getting the oxygenation to our brain and we're getting an overactive analytical brain, our ability to comprehend what we read actually decreases substantially. So if, if you are reading something important that you really want to process and you want to log in your memory banks, you want to do that not on a, a mobile device. You know, maybe a large, they didn't research like if you have a, yeah, a, a 40 inch screen, right? But it's this, it's being hunched over, looking at this small screen. Generally, your head is down, so you're already constricting your airways. You're, you're physically not able to do those size as effectively as you otherwise would. That's making that cortex, that analytical brain, go haywire, and it reduces your, your ability to, uh, to memorize things for the long term. Question, and where this led me to, which is... Here I am building an organization. We really want to be environmentally sustainable. I've st strived for years to be paper-free. Yeah. And now I'm in this situation where there are things that we need to learn very effectively and very, very deeply. I'm facing a trade-off of environmental sustainability and you know resource use versus our ability to learn and process memory effectively. Yeah. Maybe a more, because we are talking, we talked about this cathedral effect and now about this. Sometimes I have a feeling that, that if you think about startups, they don't think a lot about this kind of issues. It's more like we just want to have an, uh, a place with a low rent. <laughs> it's like a scrappy place with where we use carton boxes as chairs, and then we move forward. Whereas, what what the, the things that you are saying now would actually push them to think much more hard about what kind of office you want. And and you, you almost see the opposite if you look at corporates. If corporates create an incubator, it's this fantastic place with bean bags and the most fancy. Apple computers, uh, it's, it's like golden palace <laughs> in which they put their entrepreneurs. So it's almost like the opposite, which might also be a bit distractive, I would think. So do you have a certain position on that? I, I mean, I guess I do, right? Like, first of all, like you've heard the term greenwashing. I think a lot about innovation washing, right? Yeah. And it's putting lipstick on a pig, right? Taking environments that aren't, that aren't conducive to innovation and throwing some beanbag chairs and a fridge full of kombucha and some nice, you know, LED screens. And all of a sudden you're, you're the most innovative startup in the world. The, the fact of the matter is I don't think there's a one size fits all model. 
right? And, and I think that's what, I mean, there's some things physiologically like this with the sigh that, you know, if you're looking on a little device, that's probably not going to be beneficial for you, but there's different types of types of learning. There's different types of thinking and analytical thought. And then there's different types of human preference, right? Yeah. So if you want to create an environment, so I always think of, of Daniel Pink's, uh, piece on like, you know, what really drives people, right? And it's the desire, it's autonomy, it's the ability to achieve mastery, and it's the sense of purpose, right? And when you're thinking about organization, building great organizations or building environments that foster innovation, in the end, it's that unit of analysis being the individual and their their perceptions of autonomy, mastery, and purpose that are more important than trying to find this one-size-fits-all model that's going to now create this culture of, of performance. That's why I think this these topics we're talking about right now are so relevant, because as we're moving into this new world of work, which I frankly, some people hate the thought of not having their team sitting around them in their office all day. I would argue a little bit of sense of control there. Um, but I think what you, we are seeing is if we afford people, you know, autonomy, ability to achieve mastery and a sense of purpose and the tools that they need to create the appropriate environment for themselves, they will inherently do it. So just like we're seeing in medicine, just like we're seeing in technology, I think the future of work is about personalization. Yeah. Yeah, giving everybody their own space where they can excel. Yeah. That's right. And yes. it might look different. And frankly, it starts get re getting really interesting when you start thinking about chronotypes and sleep patterns and things of that sort, you know, or yeah. how do you incorporate balance and wellness and physical activity and things in the day? Because some people have preferences for early in the day, some have late in the evening. You know, I think biologically, they're saying if you want to exercise, the best times to do it is in the middle of the day, you know, so there are all of these interesting variables that are that are at play there. So in the end, how do you take all these different requirements and different needs, still be able to overlap them to have adequate collaboration? Yes. Nice. All right. Let's uh, wrap this up with some, ha ha ha, something that made you laugh, Dries. This was actually the most challenging one to find academic research that made me laugh. It's not that easy. <laughs> <laughs> But I found something, and actually, it's it's quite literally. So um, I actually found an, an interesting academic piece about humor and how the use of humor can influence your status in the workplace. Mm -hmm. uh, but let, let me maybe start with, with a question to you because I, I just want to know your idea. So you, of course, have done a lot of pitches in your career, uh, pitching your own companies, helping others with pitching. So what would be your advice? Should you have a joke in a pitch or not? <laughs> it's funny that you say that, Therese, because just this morning, I, I was a guest on uh, the Speak Like a CEO podcast talking about the science of storytelling. Yeah. And one of the questions that was posed to me is, where does humor fit in? So 
I, I believe I know a little bit about the research you're talking about, but what I'll, I'll come at this from a little bit of a different angle, which is the neuroscience angle. So okay. humor does something pretty amazing to the human body and brain. Um, it drives uh, endorphins. And endorphins also lead to, to laughter, right? The, the infusion of endorphins into the human body does some really amazing things. It makes listeners feel relaxed. It makes them more focused. It helps foster creative and lateral thinking. And it provides perceptions of competence and confidence in a lot of cases of these, of the people that they're listening to. Now, I think we'll probably talk about what humor actually means, but the interesting thing is endorphins are an incredibly, incredibly powerful tool if they're used effectively. And yeah. the time and place for those endorphins can are also matter very much. If you have endorphins at the end of a story, it may leave people feeling discomfort. So the timing and the positioning of those stories that also has, anyways, that's, that's my take. Endorphins, good, humor, questionable. I, I, will, I will go a bit deeper into that. So the, the paper that I found was a paper by Bitterly Brooks and Schweitzer. Mm -hmm. It was published in 2017 in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. So quite a, a hardcore psychology journal. And so the title is When Humor Increases or Decreases Status. So it's, it's a bunch of experiments that they did uh, to find out what is the impact of using humor on your status. Um, so that's what they try to do. And the interesting thing, and I, that's already coming back to you, the interesting thing is that they make a distinction between telling appropriate and non-appropriate jokes in the research. Yeah, so they primed both appropriate and non-appropriate jokes, which that was already intriguing to me. What kind of non-appropriate jokes were they using in the research? I'm on pins and needles because I am full of inappropriate jokes. <laughs> I can tell you um, this paper was published in 2017 when the Me Too movement was not yet that big. I think nowadays they would not use the, the non-appropriate jokes that they used in the paper, to right, be honest. Right. But that's, that's a different topic. So I will not repeat the non-appropriate jokes right, here. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, everybody can look at them if they want. <laughs> but I think that, so the reasoning that they had was, was quite interesting. So the, the hypothesis that they had was, look, if you tell jokes, whether they're appropriate or not, if you do that, so you tell jokes versus not telling jokes, people will perceive you as being more confident. Mm -hmm. So telling jokes gives you an aura of confidence. Mm -hmm. However, and you already touched upon that, jokes can also influence people's perception about your competence. Mm -hmm. And so what they hypothesize is if you tell an appropriate joke, it will increase your perception of competence. If you tell a non-appropriate joke, it will actually decrease your level of competence. Hmm. And so in the end, that question was, and that was an empirical question, so you have different effects here. And so you tell a joke, it will influence your confidence, but also your perception of competence. So in the end, what is the total effect on status? Mm -hmm. And so they did this bunch of experiments. And so their conclusion was like, look, if you tell a joke, irrespective of appropriate or non-appropriate, it indeed increases your confidence, perception of confidence, 
telling an appropriate joke increases the level of competence. Telling an inappropriate joke decreases the level of confidence, uh, uh, um, uh, competence. And so this negative effect of competence completely erases the confidence effect. Mm. So the total effect of telling a non-appropriate joke is negative on status, whereas the total effect of telling an appropriate joke has a positive effect on status. Mm. So in the end, what they conclude is, okay, telling a joke can be a successful strategy, but you better make sure that it's an appropriate one, <laughs> because if it's not appropriate, it will harm you instead of help you. So their conclusion is like, okay, telling a joke can be helpful, but it's risky. Because if it's not appropriate, then it actually will have a negative effect on you. That I found quite an intriguing uh, set of results. Uh, and so I think they, they confirm a bit your intuition that it really helps. And they don't, they don't link it to the, end, the endorphins and stuff like that. So they, they don't go that deep into the mechanisms. Uh, but so I think if students would come to me and ask, uh, should we tell a joke in pitch? I would say yes, but please test it up front. <laughs> because if, uh, if your test audience doesn't uh, think it's appropriate, then you might have an issue. Interesting. So I, I wonder now, I, you, you mentioned me too. So I'm starting to get a sense of what inappropriate means yeah. in this context. And it sounds like, um, yeah, gro grossly inappropriate. <laughs> um, but, but then, you know, I also think about, I, and I, I advocate for humor, um, in pitches because it can be disarming, right? Yeah. And it, it can humanize the speaker in a way, um, presents almost a little bit of vulnerability and builds that kind of trust aside from the neurochemical response. Um, but I will say it could be a totally appropriate joke, but if that joke doesn't land yeah. and it's not delivered effectively yeah. and it doesn't elicit humor, yeah. That is also a bad signal because one of the primary characteristics of an entrepreneur or a good entrepreneur is storytelling yeah. and charisma, right? Because if you can't deliver on a pitch, how are you going to deliver to a market, to customers, to recruiter, to recruiting, to all these other variables? So it's such a profoundly fundamental core tenant of a good entrepreneur yeah. that I, I would say that it's logical that inappropriate jokes would, would turn people off to their, someone's confidence, yeah. but more so if the joke sucks, you're not, you're <laughs> not going to end up well, your status is going to go downhill too. Mm. But and maybe because I, th I think we never discussed it, but I, I really, I'm, I'm really intrigued by this. And, and maybe you have the answer. Why are Americans so much better in storytelling than Europeans? And I know it, this is generalizing, but I think there is really there is really some truth in that. You know, if if I have at WAU American students and they need to present a pitch, mm -hmm. I'm always amazed by how they can do the storytelling. Whereas for me, but also my my German students or my European students, it is really a challenge. Yeah. Is is has that something to do with education in in the states? Do you have an explanation for that? Well, I mean. I, I think you're right in that observation. I, I think looking at the context of Ehau, we've got to give we got to give these students credit. Like, 
I don't see any of those American students pitching a venture in German. So to see the German students pitching it in English is just an impressive feat within itself. So I want to give credit where where credit to do. But if if all things are equal and people are pitching in their in their native tongues, I do see the Americans inherently being better at it. I would say better, more uh, visible more confident. Um, There is this kind of belief out there about like American boldness. And I would say that probably holds true in many cases. And I think there's, there's a historical context right? Um, Americans maybe haven't dealt with their shameful pasts as much as, as other parts of the world. Um, it's a big country with a lot of voices, so you have to stand out more. Um, I think humor is culturally seen as a fundamental characteristic of uh, attractive people, more okay. so than maybe in some other cultures. Yeah. And we're just loud, arrogant sons of bitches. <laughs> I've made my career on that. So, I, yeah. No, but yeah, I, I really think like, is it that in primary school, you guys have to do a lot of theater or a, a lot of performances? I always have the feeling like that it should be more than just this kind of. I, what I would say is if you want to look at the educational system, the one thing that I see is notably different is in the U.S. school system, play is actually yeah. part of the education system. So yeah. you're doing sports in your school, you're doing music in your school, you're having your recess and your, you know, physical education stuff in your school. And so much of those pieces involve peer-to-peer interaction. Right. So you are being forced into and that has downsides, too. Right. Like there are kids that are ostracized. There's bullying. There's all these other things. But I think you're socialized in the educational environment among your peers for eight hours a day. While in Germany, kids are out of school, you know, at lunchtime to go home and do their own thing independently. So that might that might play a role. I think the other thing is, is like, you know, the media we consume is a big part of it. You know, and you guys get the good stuff. We get all of it on a 350 channels of it, you know. So um, the personas that people look at in the in popular culture are, you know, the comedians and the actors, not the scientists and the, the you know, revolutionaries. So there's probably a lot of different variables. But um, you interestingly enough, though, I would say like, um Canadians. Canadians are arguably the funniest people in the world. Um, Some of the greatest, most, many of the greatest comedians the world has ever known came from Canada. It's a very big country, but very small population. Um, When it comes to this gregarious, bold confidence, not so much. Um, Funny, right? And um, very self-deprecating British people the same way, you know, very self-deprecating, great sense yeah. of humor, but not with this energy, confidence and charisma that you yeah. see from the bold Americans. But I guess that's also, you know, American exceptionalism <laughs> that we think we're the best damn people in the world. So we act like it. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, for those of you that couldn't read between the lines. I assure you that was sarcasm. <laughs> I see it. I see. <laughs>
Okay. Your turn. All right. All right. So um, when I was thinking about this topic, it it was a few weeks ago, um, and uh, I was watching the Super Bowl. I was technically I was watching like um, I didn't stay up till four o'clock in the morning, so okay. I was watching uh, replays of the Super Bowl. And honestly. My team wasn't in it. Sorry, Denver Broncos. So I was less interested in the game. And I was like, um, you know, half of more than half of America that cares less about the game and cares more about the incredible commercials that come between the game. And for those of you that aren't familiar with uh, the commercials in the Super Bowl, it is literally the most valuable broadcast real estate on earth. Uh, a 30 second con- commercial. 30 seconds can cost upwards of, of $10 million to do a commercial. And that those numbers increased even more this year. Um, and I'll tell you why. But uh, I'll start by saying um, this is a topic about, loosely, about cryptocurrency. So I think many people are interested in the topic of cryptocurrency and, and much like American politics, you're either way on one side or way on the other. There's not much of a middle ground here. Yeah, there's um, believers and disbelievers. Wow. Yeah. And they're ready to go to battle over that topic. <laughs> But so in short, many skeptics argue that cryptocurrency will never be broadly adopted because there is a limited public trust. And since it's not backed by anything material, the, the nature of supply and demand will always be limited by the lack of trust within this very confusing technology that the layman doesn't effectively understand. So we do have a lot of, aside from the, the Bitcoins and the Shiba Inus and Dogecoins of the world, there are a lot of legitimate, very, very successful companies that are participating in the cryptocurrency space. Many of them in um, ex creating exchanges and wallets that allow people to hold the cryptocurrency, trade it, and, and whatnot. So during the this year's Super Bowl, a lot of pundits named this kind of labeled this year's game as the crypto bowl because six different big multi-billion dollar crypto companies spent millions on competing ads running their ads to be the wallet to be the exchange because they realized that more and more people were becoming aware of it didn't know how it worked this was a great way to get in front of a few hundred million eyeballs very quickly so one of these exchange platforms arguably the most well-known and ubiquitous ubiquitous one called coinbase ran a 30-second commercial they spent 14 million dollars to run this commercial And being the creative tech geeks they were, the commercial basically looked like a screensaver <laughs> on, your, on your screen. So it was a QR code that bounced around from corner to corner of the screen for, for 30 seconds. And the ad essentially said, if you scan that QR code with your phone, um, it would take you to a sign-up page to join Coinbase, and you would be given a 15 US dollar credit for those who signed up, right? Okay. Um, they're thinking, hey, we're gonna 
offer our technology to everybody. We're going to give them 15 bucks for free. And they're going to see that, you know, this crypto thing is something exciting and real. And it's something that can be trusted. Unfortunately, so many people scan that QR code. <laughs> I can feel I can feel it coming. <laughs> I can only imagine standing in front of your 60-inch plasma TV with your phone chasing this bouncing QR code around the screen till you're able to capture it long enough to, to get it. But so many people indeed scan that code that the entire site catastrophically crashed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, of course, you can imagine everybody was chuckling. All of the pundits were chuckling that, hey, here's a company trying to build public trust in cryptocurrency and something as simple as a QR code scan, which is, you know, uh, kindergarten compared to the technological complexity of a cryptocurrency um, failed un unbelievably. And uh And uh, so I was reading a bunch of tweets about it. And one of the tweets that made me chuckle the most was, um, you know, the famed whistleblower Edward Snowden tweeted. And what he said is uh, Coinbase spending $16 million on a Super Bowl ad to direct people to their website and $0 to make sure the website doesn't crash 10 <laughs> seconds after the ad starts is so very internet. <laughs> and it just made me question and I thought about the old P.T. Barnum from Barnum and Bailey Circus, The Greatest Showman, if you ever saw that movie. Um, um, great movie. Um, but was he, was he or wasn't he correct when he famously said there is no such thing as bad publicity? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, what do you, what do you think, Dries? Like, I mean, I'm going to go off on a little bit of tangent here. Like, are you familiar with the concept of, of cryptocurrency? And do you think that this is something, while I'll quickly caveat and say, I personally believe blockchain and distributed ledger technology and smart contracts is one of the most formidable technologies the world has ever seen and will transform the world in so many ways. Cryptocurrency is just one implementation of that. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think cryptocurrency will um, capture, you know, capture more of the market and become more mainstream? I'm, I'm an, uh, how do you say that? I'm a very dynamic believer and non-believer. So there are periods where I really believe in it and there are periods that I don't believe in it. And to be honest, at the moment, it's a period where I believe less in it because I, I think five years ago, I bought some Bitcoins where I really bought them because of this digital gold idea. Mm -hmm. So that this could be in times of huge inflation or when uh, national currencies would devalue that people would go to Bitcoin as a kind of alternative for gold. But yeah, if I follow this reasoning, this would be a time <laughs> where <laughs> Bitcoin should really be increasing because we are facing heavy inflation. And yeah, okay, of course, now the geopolitical situation comes on top of that. So you would expect that uh, Bitcoin would really uh, flourish at the moment, which is not really the case. So it went down in January, February. It's sometimes recovering a bit, but not really growing Except for the um, past four days yeah but, but it goes up but it, it's not 
surpassing its peak that it had. Uh, I, I would think if it goes to 100,000 to 150,000, then we are talking about a different game. And so that was a bit my expectation that if inflation would kick in, that this could really happen. And it's not happening. For me, actually, if you look at the, the trend of Bitcoin and you compare it with normal stocks, it's quite parallel, which I I would actually have expected that it would be totally different. Yeah that they would compensate each other or whatever. So in that way, I'm, I'm a bit in a disbeliever stage at the moment. <laughs> it's not that I sold my Bitcoins. I still have them somewhere in a, one crazy wallet. But um, at the moment, I'm a disbeliever. At the same time, I fundamentally agree with you that, that the broader blockchain technology, yeah, that's one of the most promising technologies at the moment. And of course, a lot of people talking about Web3, although I see also a lot of discussion there like, Will Web3 really be fully decentralized or are we actually seeing that some actors are already reaping the benefits from centralizing the decentralization? And then Coinbase could be seen as one example, of course, as a centralizer of the decentralization. Mm -hmm. So I think this will, this will be, for me, one of the fundamental topics in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, will we see a trend towards full decentralization? or actually more centralization. I think about super apps and that kind of stuff in China, like WeChat, or do we go to a fully decentralized internet where everybody owns their own data? Mm -hmm. I think this is one of the most intriguing questions. And of course, I, I, I cannot predict them, but uh, yeah, it's a fundamental issue, I think. You know, it, I agree. And I think it's really interesting because it, it, it's starting to validate something that actually Mark Cuban said a few years ago, that the future is not going to be defined by technologists. It's going to be defined by philosophers. And okay. as we get this godlike technology like AI and these innovative technologies like blockchain, in the end, it's going to be the people that understand human behavior that are going to be able to train these models and whatnot. And I think this is an interesting case of it because I have this ethical conundrum with cryptocurrency. And it goes both ways. Um, I love this idea of it, this new technology becoming a great equalizer. And, you know, some say this has been one of the largest redistributions of wealth the world has ever seen. Questionable where that wealth is being distributed to and whatnot. But the power of it is there. On the flip side of the ethos is the catastrophic energy costs. That, that go into into mining, at least in yeah. those cases. Now, I don't know, I don't think that's necessarily relevant with other implementations of smart contracts and, and blockchain. But this notion of a cryptocurrency becoming a, something ubiquitous around the world, I think it's not an adoption issue. Um, maybe it's not even a trust issue. And maybe we need to start looking at it for, through an ethics Lens. But there actually, one of my core criticisms at the moment about blockchain is that what I don't like about the whole blockchain movement is that fundamental distrust in humans as decision makers. So actually smart contracts, what these people try to do is to eliminate the human out of contractual processes where they seem to assume that you can program contracts to such an extent that there is no room for discussion. There is no room for interpretation. And I would fundamentally disagree with that. I think contracts, written text needs to be interpreted. Mm -hmm. And if you eliminate the human out of the process, I think we will have big, big problems. And I'm, I'm a bit concerned about, you see that these blockchain developers all look from a very specific 
perspective of, and to be very honest, I have the feeling often these are nerds that have been bullied as a child and, and therefore don't trust humans at all and therefore want to eliminate humans out of the process. And I think that could trigger quite some issues, I would say. I, I mean, I think the, I agree. I think rigidity can be a problem. We can't dehumanize everything. Um, in the end, technology is meant to aid humanity, not replace it. Um, but what I like about it and the implementations that I think are super valuable are the is the immutability of it, right? The inability to edit it effectively. So you can see, especially when you're talking about um, the developing world, emerging markets, complex north-south power dynamic interactions, it can be incredibly powerful. Like what blockchain is doing now for land rights and land claims is extraordinary. The level of transparency that can take place through in the financial services sector, right? Where um, I think eventually there are, so, it's interesting, cryptocurrency is creating more opacity, but blockchain could create more transparency in this exact same space, you know? So it comes down to what are the objectives and of course, you know, what, what are the ethos behind it? But um, regardless, I think the the big you know Bitcoin. Um, everyone's familiar with that concept now. Th that was the first mover. Um, I think the people that are. I think the the transformative implementations are are still yet to come, and it'll be a. I think it will be an interesting debate that will um, not only be part of the practitioner's world, but probably deeply embedded in the academic research world as well. Yeah. No, and also I, what I really like is that also in our own entrepreneurial ecosystem at WAO, we see a lot of students now starting to work on blockchain, NFTs, Web3. So I think that's quite an exciting development to see. Yeah, I mean, I mean, nowadays too, a lot of that stuff you can get out of the box, like yeah. like WordPress. You know, you can build off existing infrastructure, and it's becoming more democratized, and that will only enable greater innovation. So, if there's anything great about it, is the at least the principles of open source that are in there. Um, although I wouldn't call it fully open sourced, I think there are some some analogies and that will lead to great human minds, hopefully doing great human things and maybe a few bad things as well, um, a la Theranos, going back to the original topic. But <laughs> Dries, man, this was fun. I could do this again. <laughs> uh, now, let's hope that the audience agree with us. Well, we will, um, controversial or not, we will yeah. stick to our lean startup principles and we will yes. take take this hypothesis and put it out there and um, hopefully get some positive feedback, whether um, it was liked or we should throw it in the garbage and I should bring other smart people into the room. Um, yes. But um, always a pleasure having you on board, Dries. I think we need to do more of these together. We can play point counterpoint and occasionally agree on things. And um, yeah, I think after this, hopefully we'll do this again, but we're gonna have some really great um, guests coming on in the coming weeks, including founders of some of the most recent German unicorn startups, um, out of some of the most ubiquitous brands in Germany, some of the most well-known venture capitalists, and um, I think it's going to be a really fun and exciting season. So, um, 
great to be on this journey with you, mate. Yes, looking forward to that. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us, everybody. Please feel free to send us comments and feedback, love it or hate it. If you love it, give us a, a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you hate it, uh, don't do any of that, please. Um, until next time, bis nächstes Mal. Bye.